0: Hey guys, if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please know that help is available. Call our Trusted Addiction Treatment Helpline now at 833-999-1877. Addiction specialists are available to offer support 24-7. More information can be found on this week's episode description on your podcast app. Hey, welcome to the Hell Hasn't Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Hey, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Today, I have Rocky on the show. Not your real name.
1: That is my real name. That is your real name. That's my legal name. It was my dad's name, and uh, I have a half-brother named Rocky, too. Real white trash, North Carolina. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Two Rockies? Yeah, I don't... Is it after the uh, movie? Both my parents are past, so I don't really... I never really got a chance to... I thought your mom died recently. No, my mom died, uh, and dad died nine months apart back in 2013 and 2014. So I never really... I was using, and then my dad was in federal prison most of my life, and my mom was using. Uh-huh. So I never... That was never really important to me, like the origination of my name or anything like that. But now I'm like, damn, I wish I'd asked him. You know what I mean? Well, wow. you just never thought to ask him?
0: Nah, Wait, I just... Were you close to your dad? So... Through letters,
1: even though he was in prison, like he keep in touch with you, he was very remorseful when he was in prison and would send me a letter. My little sister didn't want to have anything to do. I was the only child, I, w- I would probably say, besides maybe one or two of my other six uh, half brothers and half sisters that actually wrote back mm-hmm. and communicated with him. Once he went to prison, because he was like pretty high up in a criminal. Enterprise or whatever, like a motorcycle club. Mm-hmm. So he got busted on the Rico Act. That was like a real life-changing occurrence when I was very young because he was all over the front-page news. I was in a private school. From what they saw, I was just like an embarrassing child and stuff. Like that's how I felt, at least. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I kept in touch with him for a long time. He made it to my graduation once. He actually was released uh, about a year before I graduated from high school, so he came. How did he die? just a weird motorcycle accent mm-hmm. all came from right. pride like right. he was just really hard-headed the mts told him that he needed to uh go to the emergency room and he refused hmm. and uh they were like you probably have internal bleeding and sure enough about an hour down the road he passed out and died from internal bleeding jesus so yeah that's where that Man, was good. your mom My mom just died from the circumstances surrounding uh, her, like the lifestyle of her addiction. Mm -hmm. Both of my parents were actually... Were they both using? Yeah, but I didn't really get to spend a lot of time with him to Mm -hmm. even be able to get in touch with that part of him, you Mm -hmm. know? I mean, I've heard stories and stuff, but both of them, I know because my mom was using, she contracted HIV somehow Mm -hmm. and gave it to my father. So when I... Finally reconnected with my mother, and she was dating another guy when I was around the age of seven or eight. My grandparents raised me, so um, I was visiting her on a regular occurrence. There was a time we were in domestic violence court. I was about eight. My little sister was about seven. And I remember that her boyfriend at the time was on the stands. He was in custody. And the way that we found out both my parents had HIV was in a public courtroom. He yelled it out in front of everyone in the courtroom wow. and I was so ashamed and at the time like being that young of an age you didn't have really any knowledge about what that disease was you just automatically thought oh they have AIDS I'm their kids I have AIDS so I'm gonna die mm-hmm. and I was just like so much fear and embarrassment and shame I ran out of the courtroom with my sister and we held each other and cried and, you and your sister are close yeah we're, we're, we're really close we have a good relationship mm-hmm. not so much anymore that that we've grown up, but mm-hmm. it's significantly changed since we were kids because we used to fight like mm-hmm. cats and dogs. Yeah. yeah.
0: I don't remember you like struggling in recovery. How long have you been clean now? Uh just celebrated six years in May. So I remember like when you first started coming around, you were just like so on fire for recovery from like yeah. the beginning. Like I remember you just like going to meetings and like, in- like getting introduced to people. Like you-, you were like one of the few people that like, came in and just like on fire, still on fire.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's still how I how I live it today. That's yeah. how I feel I know, about it. Like
0: hasn't changed.
1: No, it hasn't changed, and it just it just came from consistency and building a routine around recovery. Let's start like how
0: your addiction started to unravel.
1: I know that a lot of like the reoccurring feelings I experienced as a child is something that you probably experience, mm-hmm. and most addicts experience just feeling isolated not a part of disconnected so i felt like that from a very very young age and i remember the the beginning of those feelings was when i was much much younger because my grandparents had me from the time i was 18 months old and mm-hmm. the way that that custody transfer happened through my mom to my grandparents was life altering because when i was of age and like able to understand life probably around 9 or 10 i remember that some of my family members and this might not be verbatim but this is from what I can remember is that my mom was on a long drug binge and she had been running from my my father it was a very violent toxic relationship Mm -hmm. they had she was so terrified that in this drug psychosis that she thought that my father was going to kill me or my little sister or something So. My mother got done with this uh, drug binge and she actually took me out of the car seat and left me in the front yard of my grandparents' house and didn't notify my grandparents because she was in such a deep psychosis from the drugs. And I sat out there and- How old were you? I was probably around 18 months old.
0: Oh my god! In the hot
1: sun, mm-hmm. just for an hour. To, mm-hmm. The only way that I was discovered was because my grandfather heard me crying, mm-hmm. and they came out there and got me. So, like from the very how point, do you know the story? Just from my family members. They like,
0: tell you, yeah. They, how would they tell it to you? Would it be like in a laughing, joking way, or would it be like this is what happened?
1: N- no, this is you know, it, it was so like it a was, serious. It thing? was a very sincere conversation. Gotcha. Yeah. I know that once I learned that that had happened, that was where the beginnings of the feelings of feeling disconnected and stuff or abandoned. Mm -hmm. And it was just very difficult. You think people should not tell their kids stuff like that? Should not tell I really think that that's just something that you just have to experience. Like, yeah. it's it's really hard for me to say. Because
0: it's like, what, what, at 14 you find this out and then it's like, you know, like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I know. It's it's such a touchy subject. It's like, you want to be honest with your children, but at the same time it's like.
0: Do they need to know that? Yeah. At what
1: age do they need to know that? Do you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> I, How old were you when they told you? I would probably say 10, 11, somewhere mm-hmm. around that. I don't think it was any of my my aunt or Because I think it was probably my older sister and my older brother that had, you know, because mm-hmm. they have always been honest with me about what my mom and my dad did all throughout my life for the things that I have no memory of and mm-hmm. stuff like that. They're able to help me tap into some of the things that I don't, you know, remember because they were much older. Mm-hmm. Like they're like 10, my older brother and older sister, Jeffrey and Christina are 10 years mm-hmm. or more older than me. Gotcha from the very beginning that that's when i started feeling that way and then it just progressively got worse and i know that like the the first experiences that i had with using wasn't even with drugs it was getting validation through acting out like whether it was like i'm going to do this thing and act out so that i can get the attention that i need to get validation and i remember feeling at a very young age of how comfortable and how great that feeling Felt. And it was very short-lived because mm-hmm. afterwards, after I would act out and do something that wasn't necessarily good, like steal something from a store or something like that, I know that afterwards I would feel a lot of shame and guilt. And it just started this cycle. Mm-hmm. So when I was first introduced into mind or mood-altering substances, I felt at home, you know, it just continued that cycle that i already started at a very young mm-hmm. age. Mm-hmm. So I know that it started out in the very beginning, just, you know, having fun in high school, drinking and smoking and stuff like that. But I know from like looking back and doing inventories and stuff of what, what occurred at that time during, I know that after about a a year or so of like smoking weed and like drinking regularly, there was a point where I gave up my PS2 for collateral to my weed dealer across the street. Uh, How old? I think I was probably like 12 or 13 or something Mm -hmm. like that. But looking back at that now, that like, like that's junky behavior. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's something we do to cop heroin or coke mm-hmm. or something like that. And I was doing that way before I even started using those substances. Mm-hmm. So I know it was like that for me in the very beginning. And I didn't even, I had no awareness that that was a problem, but that was just normal to me.
0: So for me, like the red flags for me is like using alone. I was using alone almost instantly. As soon as I realized, like, you could get drunk, I was like, well, let me just get drunk in my room by myself. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, like what 12-year-old kid is, like, drinking beers watching Nickelodeon? By themselves? You know what I mean? <laughs> what are you doing, you loser? <laughs> and, like, the beers were so gross that I would, like, do liquor, and, like, liquor was gross, so then I would, like, mix it with, like, Coke or something. And
1: yeah.
0: And i drink, like, wine coolers because they tasted <laughs> okay. And then, uh, obviously, smoking weed by myself, but, yeah, like, also, like, selling, like, possessions or you know sneaking out of the house to get high by yourself yeah waking up to do it you know like
1: yeah like all of the stuff and you know mm-hmm. <laughs> figuring out if you're an addict all mm-hmm. those questions
0: but I know what's sad is that I was talking to someone yesterday she was like you know telling me that she's been struggling with smoking dope on and off and I, I know that from like her mom I know that it's meth, and she says she's been doing it for years she's probably been doing I would say minimum 10 years right Mm. And I was like, well, that's kind of how addiction is, da-da-da. She's like, oh, well, I don't really consider myself an addict because I don't withdraw. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, that's so crazy how people think. Like, like it's crazy how, like, somebody could have such a bad drug problem with, like, meth. Like, you know, it's not like, if it was marijuana, I'd be like, okay. But it's like, dude, we're talking about doing meth. Like, it's not a recreational thing. Like, if you're doing, like, meth, coke, heroin, Oxycontin, even Xanax for periods of time like longer than like one or two years it's not normal <laughs> it's not normal it's like uh and yeah. I don't want to laugh because it, it it blows my mind that like some because like I think when I was using like I knew I knew yeah. like problem smoking crack I knew I had yeah. a drug problem and that I was probably an addict but I guess I did have some denial but it's just crazy how someone who does meth will look at a heroin addict and be like wow that they're, they're addicts
1: yeah Yeah, I think it ranges from person to person because I've heard so many different experiences. I've heard this with alcohol before. Mm -hmm. I talked with a family member where their loved one was in the, they called from the hospital room and the guy is literally in there with waiting for a liver transplant and is still convinced that he isn't an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like how insidious the disease of addiction is. It, every turn that you take, it continues to surprise me still Mm -hmm. to this day. Even with six years in recovery, all this knowledge and experience, like, I still hear things where I'm just like, holy sh... And it's not like... I don't have like a judgmental feeling or anything like that. I I clearly identify as like, that's addict shit. That's what we do, you know? If anything,
0: the total denial of being an addict is more of addiction than the drug use. Yeah, yeah. like the drug use (laughs) is almost like whatever, but the ability to tell yourself that you're not an addict when you're doing probably like the most addictive drug on the planet off and on for years, it's the off and on that I think trips people up. It's that like, because you're able to stop for periods of time, it's like the literature says, like we look at the stopping, not the using, Mm -hmm. and it's like, that's kind of like the hardest people to treat and diagnose or whatever, or help. Because, like, they have periods of stopping.
1: Yeah. When you hear about stuff like that and you see it, you're just so surprised about the complexity of addiction mm-hmm. and where it takes you. I know that w- when you said something with about, I knew I was at, I, I knew too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There was still some part of me. It was just stuffed down and I kept stuffing it out further and further.
0: Yeah, I think... Um there was like little revelations throughout time where i was like okay i think i think that might have a problem <laughs> yeah. and then like when i came into recovery and read the literature that's when it was like yeah oh shit, yeah <laughs> that was when i had like my real like eye opening like this is what i have yeah this is exactly what it is
1: there was no hesitation when i read it too it mm-hmm. was just like that's me that's exactly who i am and i feel like that's why recovery and all of that works so well because you find such a deep, overwhelming connection to it. What's even cooler about that is now that I have some years and I've had more experience and stuff like that, I look at the literature and stuff like that, and the magnitude of all of the uh, of time and energy that was invested into making that literature mm-hmm. is just mind-blowing because yeah. they just sat there for hours and hours. And that it,
0: st- it stood the test of time. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of unchanged, and it's unchanged but revised. Yeah. So very few like organizations like constantly review and revise. Yeah. And it's kind of like a thing. It's like imagine a church being like, "All right, guys, we're gonna revise the Bible this year." You know, <laughs> people would <to> freak out. <laughs> yeah, but it's like we have like an open-mindedness of our belief that is constantly changing. That it's like there's like this one speaker tape, and like the the topic is the truth. And this guy says, like, everything must be up for revision, especially what we know about the truth. Yeah. All right. So how did you get into, like, how did your disease progress?
1: In the beginning, like, when I started using, like, and partying with my friends in high school and stuff like that, now that I look back, I was just like, holy shit. Like, it was way, it was out of control way earlier than I actually thought it was. Because for my prom, I was blacked out drunk. I got kicked out of my prom I had multiple occurrences in high school where I was getting caught selling or using substances. I remember even, this is actually what happened. I got really good grades in school. Like my GPA was really, really good, but my attendance sucked. So that affected my overall GPA Mm -hmm. because of my attendance. And I remember like towards the end Like, my 11th grade year, I got busted for selling marijuana, and they put me in this alternative school. Wouldn't let me come back until I completed it. So when I completed it and came back, I ended up showing up to prom and stuff, drunk and stuff like that. I was already struggling to try to graduate high school. Towards the end of my uh, 12th grade year, the principal and the resource officer and someone else came up to me after prom After I showed up and embarrassed myself and they're like, they gave me an ultimatum. They were like, because of your history here with us, you're either going to be expelled from school and you're not going to graduate or you're going to go undercover as a CI and try to buy drugs from the maintenance man. What? Dude, it was insane. The maintenance man there at my high school was trafficking cocaine and marijuana. Uh So it just happened to, this is what I was telling you. Like this shit only happens to me. And at the time I remember they, wait, you're in 11th grade, 12th grade. I was in 12th grade. And they're like, we need you to be a CI. Yeah. They were like, we need you. If you want to graduate high school, it was very manipulative because Mm -hmm. they were just like, Hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. You either do what we want or we're going to kick you out of school and you're not going to graduate. That's what they sat down and told me. And I was speaking to them. I was like, I'm not I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. I was terrified. I was just a kid. Like I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to go to fucking I'm not trying to get murdered, you know what I mean? And after I told them no and stuff like that, they never brought it up again, which was so weird. Mm-hmm. Like I still think about it to this day. I was like, are they supposed to do that? Was that legal mm-hmm. yeah. for them to like give me that ultimatum? But I know from that that time and around that time I had got my wisdom teeth pulled and I was still living with my grandparents. And when I got my wisdom teeth pulled, I got prescribed oxycodone. And when I got prescribed oxycodone and I took it for the first time, I was like, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for my entire life to make me feel comfortable to where I had some type of connection, felt comfortable talking to people and being sociable and stuff like that. I felt like I could accomplish anything. And then after I ran out of the medication, I remember I, like, had my cricket phone or something at the mm-hmm. time. And I was putting people in group text threads mm-hmm. and telling them that, hey, I'll pay you $20 if you can find somebody who can find me these pills like this. And looking back at that now, like, who, you know what I mean? I was, I was who 17. Does who yeah. does that? So I know that that's where it, like, really kicked off and, like, that's where it started. Was Move that? Painkillers. Yeah. As soon as I took one, it was over for me.
0: Really? Because normally people don't, because like I didn't like painkillers like the first three times I did them because I got so nauseous.
1: Yeah, I felt the same way too, but I just kept taking them Mm -hmm. to overcome that nausea and just Mm -hmm. get comfortable. I don't know. Now that I look back, it's like, eh, that's like what a lot of the people told me that I was using with was like, oh, just take more, just take more. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I knew that without even talking (laughs) to anybody, you know, to take more. So I did. And it was like on and off. And I graduated high school and literally didn't do anything after high school. I didn't follow up and go to college. Or I remember feeling seeing all my friends like go away to college and stuff like that. I was working at a car wash at the time and I was scamming. I remember I was working at a car wash. It was like seven or eight white guys. And there was a couple black guys that was working there. And I remember that I was using one of the other employees' PIN numbers to get into the register to mm-hmm. steal money and he eventually got fired because of what i was doing because oh, i was using his is, yeah. yeah eventually i lost that job i honestly never really worked in active addiction mm-hmm. like i leached off of my grandfather like i found a loophole with the way that i had the relationship with my grandfather where you know he would give me my mo- money on a regular basis and i just found means and ways to manipulate and lie to him mm-hmm. to get that money everything that i did was really really wild i mean just the types of crimes that I was involved in and stuff like that just to use and like party and have fun, like it was back and forth. There were like binges where I was using like oxy and like coke and alcohol. And then there'd be a couple weeks where I was only drinking and stuff like that. And now that I look back, it was just a matter of time before something like got really, really worse. And mm-hmm. it did. It got really bad for me. After that happened, like I moved in with my brother and the people that he was hanging around with or that he was closely tied in with were just like you know basic street hustlers they had face tats and stuff like that and like they had all these tattoos and I'm fresh out of high school and got no tattoos really <laughs> and the lifestyle that they were living was so attractive to me mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell you why it was so attractive to me because the way that I saw my father when i was growing up and glorified Mm -hmm. what he was doing because it seemed so cool to me like all the trafficking and stuff that i found out that he was doing and like all of like the attempted murders like that type of lifestyle was so attractive to me for Mm -hmm. some reason that's like why it's so important like i know for how i treat my nieces and nephews and anybody that is younger than me how i treat them is so important because it's going to greatly affect how they're going to operate in the future. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we influence each other on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So I know that from the very beginning that that's what happened with me. I saw him and then I saw my brother's friends and I started hanging out with them. We would wait until Christmas because we knew that a uh, family members were, were sending their other family members cash and around the holidays. And we would go hit the mailboxes. Now that I look back, I'm like, how, how am I not in prison? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I just like, and for, I don't know, for some reason, I'm really grateful. I escaped active addiction with no felonies at all. I was just in and out of jail for just minor misdemeanors, mm-hmm. just like petty stuff. But I know when I started hanging out with them, like it it progressively got worse. Like every time I went out to the club, I had to be fucking tore up from the floor up with Klonopins mm-hmm. or xanax and alcohol. I remember one time, and this is such a funny story. I was in uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s uh, club in downtown Charlotte, North Carolina, because North Carolina is the racing capital of the mm-hmm. world for NASCAR. So they have a lot of that stuff down there. And we were in his club, and I was with that crew and stuff like that. And I was on and I was drinking it, and I was just fucking on one. I was just ready to go. And like that's how I was. I was just such a hothead that I was just ready to go and fight anyone. Didn't matter who you were or whatever. And i remember i went into the bathroom and i was just like in that hazy fog where i was in and out of the blackout and i remember seeing this like poor like kid like he was one of the ones that was like passing out cologne what are those guys mm-hmm. called in the bathroom yeah,
0: yeah they work in the bathroom
1: yeah they work in the bathroom and he was like hey do you want some towels and i was like did you call me a bitch <laughs> and, and then my friend was like he's not he didn't say that he asked you if you wanted a towel or something and i was like no nah, you called me a bitch and i just fucking punched him as hard as oh i my fucking God. Could. this poor guy that's just like trying to support his family and that's stuff crazy. like that there were just like occurrences like that where i was just like what the fuck was I doing? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. After that, and things just started getting progressively worse, like my brother would have conversations uh, with me about what I was doing, just the lifestyle I was living, because he was the only one out of all of us that was like hardworking. Mm -hmm. He was an electrician, stuff like that. And he kept telling me, he's like, I'm trying to set a good example for you because I don't want you to experience what your, your dad went through and your mom went through and stuff like that. At some points, especially, he was like a really good mentor because he was just trying to keep me away from that path, you know what I mean? We would just do like insane things. Like I remember just doing things and getting in trouble and having charges and, and waiting court dates and stuff like that and I would not go to court and then the sheriff would have to come and find me and then I wouldn't answer the door and then they would call out the dogs. It, it was just like a regular cycle of this type of stuff, this mm-hmm. lifestyle. It was absolute insanity. Like I remember that like going in and out of jail waiting for a trial or whatever the case was seeing a probation officer was like on a part of my life it was my identity that's like who yeah, it i was normal. yeah so like this trauma is being handed down to me from the generation before me and i'm already starting the course of handing it down to my children mm-hmm. and my nieces and nephews so i look back now and i'm just like what the fuck when did you start getting like the tattoos about 18 when i started hanging yeah. out with them i remember my grandmother's name is on the she died right after my high school graduation. My grandmother's was name was uh, Virginia, but mm-hmm. my grandfather called her Ginger. I was at the tattoo shop and I was texting my older sister. And I was like, hey, I'm thinking about getting Ginger tattoo on me. Should I get it on my inside of my arm or my neck? I don't know <laughs> why those two. And my older sister's like, do your neck. <laughs> it's like, all right, great. Great advice. Nice. So once I got it on my neck, I just like didn't, I was very impulsive. So when I would go to tattoo shops. I would be so intoxicated. I would just be like, "Hey, yeah, just give me that uh, one off the wall right there." You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? So I haven't really gotten anything in recovery. Except yeah, you I'm, haven't
0: got any more, right? Yeah,
1: just it just hasn't been like any sort of priority for me. I got one on my leg for my mom but, i think you should get more face tats yeah a lot of people say, <laughs> of people say
0: that <laughs> Cause Cause just, i don't know if the camera can see it but you have like that one face yeah, tat here right here yeah uh-huh
1: yeah and it's an upside down cross and i don't even know what it meant
0: it's the worst wait wait symbol. so you have a cross here then you have an upside down cross here
1: oh do you see where i have an unfinished cross there's two there's one that was uh-huh. started and it wasn't finished. Oh, do you yeah, see, it? I see, it, see
0: it? yeah, So
1: this is the funny thing about this story with what this with Dang, how this you have four crosses Dude, <laughs> I I, I do I'm from North Carolina, man. I just <laughs> I like, just like learned to be white trashy. <laughs> you know what I mean? These crosses down here. I remember I was on like a Coke binge and my little sister Megan, we were going to a tattoo shop. She was like, I'm going to take you to my tattoo guy, whatever. And she was going to get one too. So we get there, right? She says, you can go first. So the guy's kind of like a prick. He's talking to me. And I don't think he knew that me and her were brother and sister. Mm -hmm. So like, he might've like misread the situation. Mm -hmm. And this is also during a drug psychosis. So mm-hmm. I was like, I don't even know if this actually happened, but this is how I felt at the time.
0: That's <laughs> preface. That. Yeah,
1: yeah, I felt like he thought that we weren't brother and sister and I was like interfering on his like shot to get with her or whatever. Mm-hmm. So when he was like tattooing me, he was going very very deep and I was bleeding, you know, pretty heavily throughout the tattoo and I was like and I had just gotten the face tat, and I gotten the other tattoo on my neck right here. So I, like, even though I was high and under the influence, like, I I knew what that pain felt like. And it was a different pain when he started tattooing me. I was like, hey, man, are, are you going too deep or anything? And he was just like, hey, man, shut up, man. Just quit complaining, man. I'm, you know, doing you a favor, blah, blah, blah. And I remember it was just something along that lines. I had convinced myself that he was trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. Like, I had, a, like, a deep belief that he was trying to, like— take my life mm-hmm. through tattooing me because <laughs> I was bleeding and I was paranoid on Coke. And so like the moment that he took a break and turned around, I just got up and ran and bolted out the door.
0: Oh my God. And
1: I left my car there and I ran. And the next day I woke up in the middle of the woods uh-huh in a pile of pine needles. I looked at my cell phone I had like 50 calls. Mm-hmm. And apparently my sister said that I've been, I took off running and left the tattoo shop and just went directly into the woods. And I disappeared and she didn't hear from me until the next morning when I called her and mm-hmm. saw all those missed calls.
0: Let me see it again.
1: It's like unfinished. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, you see. Yeah. So <laughs> I still haven't never gotten that finished. Ten years later, <laughs> but that was just like the type of life I was living. It was just fucking insane, man. Oh,
0: what made you want to do the upside down cross? You just didn't know. What I it was. saw it in
1: a magazine. <laughs> and I saw the guy and I was like I was like oh shit man he looks cool man this is going to make me look like a thug so I was like I told the tattoo guy to thug me up you know what I mean yeah <laughs> and, you need more on your face and yeah dude we'll see yeah more will be revealed how many times have you gone to treatment so actually twice it twice. was just a state funded detox for three days and in then florida and in, in north carolina north carolina yeah
0: so what leads you to like wondering if like maybe you should get clean
1: i know that before the only times that i had ever gotten clean was because it was forced upon me through the, you know, courts. the courts or whatever i know that there was numerous times while I was using, where I like had convinced myself for a few minutes or like an hour that I needed to get help, but I just wasn't willing to follow through with it. I know that there was a time, the first time that I went to a state-funded detox, I was homeless. I had stolen from my older sister that I used with and stuff. Went to this uh, detox and they took me in, and like I think like four hours in, I started going through because I was doing methadone and opanas and Roxy's mm-hmm. and all that type of stuff at the time. So I was really going through withdrawals and in north carolina they don't give you a suboxone taper like they just make you go through cold turkey withdrawals they give you like aspirin and stuff so it was miserable and i remember like on hour four i was like i'm breaking out of here that's it so i was like trying to find a wall to climb to get out of there and then one of the other clients there was like you know you're here voluntarily you can just walk out and i was Mm -hmm. like oh shit so I walked out and I had somebody come pick me up, but that was like in like 2011, I think that that happened. And it wasn't until a couple, a few more years later where I was finally like desperate and broken enough to where I got to put in a position when I was homeless that I had no other alternative. I was tired of, you know, sitting on the corner, flying a sign which is holding a sign up and like Did you have creative signs? It. No, it just said <laughs> stupid shit. I was like rude too. It just said "give me money" or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> so something like really just out of pocket. My main hustle was just walking through the parking parking lots and telling people that I just got out of prison because <laughs> I looked like that, uh-huh. saying that I was trying to get on my feet and I just needed to get money from clean underwear and socks and they would give it to me that's fine that was like the best hustle that i had that's pretty sad too now that i said that out loud <laughs> it was like the best thing i could accomplish back in that time
0: that seems pretty solid you make a lot of money like
1: that yeah you do i mean i've survived out there
0: people are generous people don't like something you know i know like in society like we have all these views like people are pieces of shit a lot of people aren't <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: I see a lot of people all the time, still to this day. Like people in the corner, there would be like a whole line of traffic off and all for ample ninety five, mm-hmm. and people like here,
0: yeah, know, just give it. them
1: money, yeah, yeah. And it's
0: like so, like your hustle is different because it's very, it's like, hey, I'm only doing this because of like X, Y, and Z. You're also young. You look like put together. Look like you could just have some bad luck. People don't want to give money to somebody who's like older, who's like, bro, you've had enough chances. Yeah. you know, you've had enough chances, and. If I give you this money, you're not going to go do something positive and go stop being homeless. This is just how you live. So if I give you the money, you're just in, like, this predicament for a short period of time. Yeah. So, like, those are the hustles that get the most, like, the like the big bucks. Like, someone might give you, like, 40, 50 bucks. Yeah. But, like, on the corner, people are, like, giving, like, a dollar or whatever.
1: Yeah, the age has a lot to
0: do with it. <gasps> it's, like, the age and, like, the way, like, it, it like, if you're just, like, hey, like, you know, my car just broke down, it's more appealing than if someone was, like, this is just what I do yeah. to get
1: beer. There was a pastor... When I was at a gas station, it was like a pastor from the hood, and he was just trying to preach to me while I was at the gas station. I had a gas can, Mm -hmm. and I was trying to hustle him. I was like, hey, my car broke down on the side of the road. My sister's stranded there, blah, blah, blah. I don't have a phone. She's staying there with the car, so nobody steals it. Will you give me some money for gas? And he was like, I'll fill the tank up for you, the gas uh, can up, and I'll take you to your sister. The thing about it was I had no car. Yeah. I had lied about the whole thing. There was no mm-hmm. sister or anything. They're like, not nah, forget it. <laughs> and he's like, and I just like went along with it, got in the car with them, took the gas can. And he what? was like, <laughs> where did you go? <laughs> <laughs> we went to the highway. And he's like, he's like, where is it? I was like, yeah, it's coming up soon. I kept saying it was going to come up soon. And my idea, because I switched my plan throughout the. What's
0: to say they towed it or something?
1: No, I did say something like that. But I eventually got him to take me to my grandfather's house to get money. So the whole ride, I was like, nah, it's not this spot. I can't remember. Nah, it's not this spot. (laughs) And the guy's just very gullible. He's just going along with it. And he dropped me off. And he gave me his number, too. He was like, anytime you need gas or uh, a ride, just let me know. But you got to come to church services on Sunday. That's cool. That's cool. (laughs) So he was trying to hustle me. Yeah, he's trying to hustle you. That's how we do it in recovery. Yeah, that's how we do it with service. Yeah. You're like, "All right, yeah, just well, come Well, We along. have cookies. <laughs> yeah, we have cookies or donuts mm-hmm. or coffee. There was two occurrences towards the end before I came to Florida where I truly believing at the time that I really needed to get help and there, there was a problem here. Mm-hmm. So, there was a girl that I was using with at the time and she had a car, she had a couple kids. Their her parents had the uh, custody of the kids, so it was just me and her using. And I remember we were coming back from the, uh, the beach in North Carolina, and she wouldn't take me by my grandfather's house. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm about to fucking steal this mm-hmm. fucking girl's car. That's what I'm about to do. So we got to the gas station, and we were walking towards the entrance after we got out of the car, and she had the keys on the lanyard. So I was walking behind her, and I snatched them out of her, took off running, and hopped into the car. And she reached in the window and hung onto the car, and I just hit the gas no. and pushed her face out of it. And uh, she stood up and she was screaming, like wailing, he stole my car, mm-hmm. all this shit. Hey guys, Bird
0: Dogs are the official apparel brand of the Hell Has an Exit podcast. Are you tired of sacrificing comfort for style when it comes to your activewear? Well, we've got a solution that's going to revolutionize your wardrobe. Let me introduce you to Bird Dogs the ultimate shorts for the modern adventurer. Picture this, you're on a hike, hitting the gym, or simply lounging around at home. With bird dogs, you'll never have to compromise on comfort or functionality again. These shorts are designed to adapt to your active lifestyle while keeping you looking sharp. Bird dog's stretch khaki shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a truly sculpted look. Bird dogs do the exact same thing as Lululemon, but fit way better. Bird Dogs also uses an anti-stink, sweat, wickening fabric that keeps you cool and dry all day. But that's not all. Bird Dogs have an integrated built-in liner offering unparalleled support and eliminating the need for underwear. Say goodbye to uncomfortable chafing and say hello to freedom. Need to stash your phone, wallet, or keys? Bird Dogs has got you covered too. With the deep secure pockets, you can keep your essentials close to you without worrying if they're gonna fall out. And did I mention they're incredibly stylish? Bird Dogs comes in a range of vibrant colors and patterns so you can express your personality while staying on top of your game. Upgrade your active game today. Go to birddogs.com exit or enter promo code exit for a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com slash exit or promo code exit for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't take your Bird Dogs off, we promise you.
2: Welcome to the Genesis house powered by the United Recovery Project. Located in sunny South Florida, we offer drug and alcohol addiction treatment as well as a major focus on dual diagnosis. Our addiction therapy programs include behavioral therapy, 12-step facilitation, psychotherapy, life skills training, and more. At our facility you can expect a low client to staff ratio, daily group therapy, weekly one-on-one therapy sessions, and luxury amenities such as volleyball, basketball, pool, chiropractor, personal trainer, yoga, massage therapy, and more. Contact the United Recovery Project today and let's create a better tomorrow.
1: So after that, I went running heavy. I was just like hitting supermarkets, stealing, just all this stuff. I remember like eventually like the brake pads went out on the car and it was just grinding metal mm-hmm. over and over and over again, day in and day out. And I just kept remembering like, damn, I need to hustle up some money after I cop. I need to make sure that I get these brake pads replaced, which isn't that much money. Mm-hmm. And I just procrastinated and put it off for so long. Eventually all of the brake pads went out. And then the brakes went out entirely on the car. So all I had to rely on was the emergency brake to stop the car. No. But when, it gets better, right? So I'm using the emergency brake to stop the car, and it's not 100% effective. So anytime I'm speeding or coming up to a light, like I have to stop a, um, lot sooner. a lot sooner. And there were times where someone was in front of me, and I was trying to go through a light, and they would stop at the yellow light, and I'd have to swerve and pull the e-brake and just <laughs> pull all the smoke screeching tires. And then, eventually, <laughs> eventually the emergency brake went out, so I had to stop the car by putting it in reverse. No! Even, dude, there was what? one... What? So, I was, I was coming what up to... It, it was a Pontiac G6 four-door, it was silver, I'll never forget it. And it was just completely trash from the inside out, cigarette burns everywhere, The fucking brakes are fried. The cops
0: never found the car? She never called the cops? Uh,
1: So she, later on, after I got, like, interrogated, after I got (laughs) caught, the cops said that they couldn't charge me with uh, Grand Theft Theft Auto because I had the keys to the car. Mm -hmm. She was also using, so they didn't believe what she had to say. You know, they took the police report down and they didn't really follow through. I saw
0: this crazy video about Akon. And Akon, when he was younger, him and his, like, brother had, like, this hustle where they would valet cars and they would just steal the cars. They would sell the cars and make, like, thousands of bucks on them from whatever. And then if they ever got caught, it would just be, like, a little misdemeanor because it's a joyriding charge instead of a grand theft charge because they have the keys.
1: Yeah, that's kind of, like, what they told me, too. They wanted me. How did you get caught? Okay, this is good. So so <laughs> I remember I was leaving a, a, a QT, which is what Wawa is down here. Okay. I was trying to hustle some cigarettes out of the place or whatever because I had a fencer that was buying all the cigarettes. It was this corner store and that was my hustle back then. So I, I'm going to leave and I couldn't get the cigarettes. It was too sketchy. Mm-hmm. So I go down to pool into this neighborhood and remember I had no brakes, no emergency breaks. So I've been using reserve uh reverse, the, reverse to stop. The I corner. don't understand how you could you could drive the car like that? Yeah, I would drive the car like that. And if you put the car in reverse, it would stop, but it would click for probably like 30 yards or so. You would hear the transmission clicking. The The tires are still moving, but you put it in reverse to stop the gears. Yeah. So it would click eventually, and then it would stop. And it was the sketchiest thing. Dude, there were times where I had to do complete 180s and pull and swerve into people's yards. <laughs> just tearing up flowers and shit like it was fucking horrible people that i was using with my drug dealers were like absolutely not stay the fuck away from us i remember i tried to rent the car with no brakes to my drug dealer and he was like yo don't fucking call me anymore like why would you even call? i was so desperate but i was leaving that qt what drugs are you doing now Oh, heroin. Speedball, coke and and heroin. So you're shooting coke and heroin. And I had to have Xanax to balance out the upper and the downer.
0: Landing gear. Yeah,
1: had to have that. And I'm leaving the store. I pulled into this neighborhood. It's like a semi nice neighborhood. And I go to take a left into this driveway to turn around. And I'm not paying attention because I'm really high. And I go to turn in and it's a downhill driveway. So when I pulled down the driveway and I tried to put it in reverse, I Mm -hmm. guess the gears were totally fried. So it didn't stop. And there's a huge, like, six-foot metal gate to the entrance of their driveway halfway down. And I just slammed through it. And I'm going, like, 25 coming Mm -hmm. down this hill. And I see this open garage, like this uh, guest house with Uh the open garage. And then this huge, like display of flowers and like vegetables and stuff. And I'm like headed straight for this fucking SUV and this car <laughs> in the garage. And I just at the last moment swerved and just fucking destroyed all the flowers and veggies and the, and what she had growing out there. And I remember getting out and just terrified. And then I saw the old lady looking out the window like, why the fuck did she? my flowers? Like that's all she cared about. I felt so terrible And I took off running. (laughs) I hid underneath the underpass for a while. And then I saw the police helicopter and I was like, fuck. So I walked back up to the scene of the crime and the cop is like, have everything blocked off because they don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, I walk up to the cop and the cop's like, hey man, get out of here. We just, we got a crime scene, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, 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 I actually did that. And he was like, why would you do that? Because I was homeless at that point. Once I lost the the transportation, I was done. Yeah, I just like completely gave up. I wanted to sleep. So I walked up there and the guy was like, the guy was, after I told him it was me, he was like, dude, get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. What? And I'm like, no, 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 dude. I was driving that vehicle. He was like, yeah, yeah. All right, get the fuck out of here. He kept telling me to leave. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, I was like, dude, I did this. Like I was in that car. I took off running. He's like, oh, all right, yeah, come with me. And he put me in cuffs. (laughs) The cop, that was driving that arrested me, had some like ride along intern or something, this guy in like a fucking suit, it was weird. The guy in the suit probably was like, what the fuck? They took me back to the police station, interrogated me, and were like, hey, listen, we're not worried about the car, we're worried about your brother, because my brother, older brother Rocky, Mm -hmm. had started to be a part of that organized crime Mm -hmm. syndicate that my father was in. So they knew that, and they called the other county police department that was investigating my brother, and they wanted to know more information about that. They didn't give a shit about the car. Mm -hmm. So I told them, like, I hadn't talked to him. I didn't fucking know. I was so desperate. I eventually told them. I was like, hey, listen, if you let me go, I'll tell you where all the drug dealers are and stuff like that. They told me that they would have me undercover as a CI. Again. Again. (laughs) And uh, that they would pay me. And they gave me a nickname to call into the police officer's the office. Nickname? It was Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> no, I swear to God, that's exactly <laughs> what it was. That's the name I chose at the time. You chose it? I chose it. It was the first <laughs> thing that came to my <laughs> mind. And they were like, what nickname do you want to use? I was like, oh, fuck Sonic, <laughs> Sonic God, Hedgehog. Yeah, let's do that. Because <laughs> he was my favorite growing up. I really loved him, dude. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> It was so oh great. God. And then I remember I got out of jail eventually and I and I what? walked to the gas wait, station.
0: Wait, so what did were you become
1: a CI? I went to go do it when I got released. I like <laughs> I was like, uh, they even in the interrogation, they pulled up a map of where I was copying and they were like, hey, listen, where is it at? So I pointed everything out and they were like, all right. So this but wait, is, like,
0: is this a real map, or are you just making stuff up?
1: No, no, no. This is like an actual GPS tablet or something. Mm-hmm. They're showing me GPS. No, on. I know,
0: but are you really telling them where the drug no, dealers are? No, I really are? am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like dead ass there.
1: I'm like, I'm like frantic at this point Uh because i got no transportation no money my my family won't talk to me i have nothing i was like i'll fucking snitch on every single person i was snitching on people that weren't even doing anything (laughs) just to like get out of the situation and uh they were like they explained it to me. They were like, "Okay, you're gonna call him with this code name, this nickname. You're gonna come meet one of our undercover officers. They're gonna give you money to go buy the drugs and whatever, and they are gonna do all this." They orchestrated this whole thing for me, and I get out of the jail and I call the phone number that they gave me, and I called it. And when they answered, they they're like, "Hey, police department, how can I help you?" And I, and I told them the code name and the officer's code name that I was supposed to be calling for. The lady came back on the phone. She was like, "We don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> So here I am, homeless again. The fucking <laughs> cops have fucking lied. And maneuver- they probably just used all the information that I gave and just fucking discarded me to the streets. Yeah, like, we're going to give you a job. <laughs> now I can't cop anymore because I just snitched on all my of my dealers.
0: Wait, 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 wait. So they lied. Said they're going to give you a job. They're going to make you a CI. they give a fucking code name. Then they throw you back into the wolves. Then they don't. Follow through with anything and just use all your information. Anyway. All
1: used <laughs> all of it. Fucking completely fucked me over. So from that <laughs> that's point is smarter than it is. I mean, I can imagine that's like a great way to fucking <laughs> get, get <free> information. Info. <laughs> from that point forward, like not only was I homeless and had no transportation, but now I have to use a third-party middleman to cop now. Mm-hmm. And that's even sketchy because the yeah. drug dealers are probably paying them to, you know, fine me or whatever. I don't even know if they were ever even busted or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. who knows? But eventually got locked up. It was the last time that I went to jail. I remember I was living in a homeless camp, and I was walking down a railroad, and it's illegal to walk down railroads, apparently. I had warrants. The cops arrested me, took me into jail. I started to go through withdrawals, and then the uh, jail was overcrowded, so they put me in a pod with juveniles. So it was like me and three other adults and just a bunch of juveniles in bunk beds in this big dorm uh, mm-hmm. Pod, and dude, they were fucking Crazy, doing pranks right? on each other. Yeah, I heard they're off the chain. Wrapping each other in fucking uh, <laughs> toilet paper while you're sleeping, like, bro, this is fucking jail. Like, this is not summer camp. Like, you're not supposed to be fucking. There was like one kid that was definitely on the spectrum. They wrapped him in toilet paper, and he fucking almost killed one of those kids. Like, it's like not that's not the type of shit you do in jail. And I like, I wanted to get out of there so bad. I made friends. Did they try to prank you? No. I, st- I was fucking withdrawing all night, so I was up <laughs> all night. I was fucking on my P's and Q's. I would have probably got my ass beat anyways. I was such a pussy, but I'm still a pussy. You know what I mean? I don't fight. <laughs> I met someone in jail. He was about to get out, and he was like, hit me up when you get out. I'll give you a place to stay. Mm-hmm. And he was an addict too, so it was a great idea and I got out and I started living at this trailer or whatever and I still had the clothes that I had, had on before when I was homeless. Mm-hmm. And I also had, I had contracted fucking what they call swamp foot, which is back from the Vietnam area where yeah, they yeah. and I had this flesh eating bacteria in my feet uh, uh, just from not taking showers. Yeah. yeah. And just being hot and sweaty and not taking showers. But I still had that, and I was going to this girl's house with him, staying there, and I did meth for the first time. How was that? It was terrible because it was like euphoric feeling of wanting to commit suicide. Mm. Like I was calling, and I just thought it was such a great idea. I was going to jump off the second story balcony and land right on my head. And like I was on the phone with my older sister or something, like walking her through what I was about to do. It was, But I felt good about it. It wasn't like a feeling of like depression or sadness. Like I, it was like an overwhelming feel, feeling of euphoria to where it was like exciting to kill myself. Mm-hmm. It was such, and I never did meth again, but after that shortly, those people I was using with <clears throat> kicked me out. I was sleeping out in the woods by myself. I had no money, no uh, anything. And the girl that just kicked me out said, Hey, listen, like, I don't know where I can take you, but you can't be sleeping in the woods next to my trailer. She kicked
0: you out of the woods.
1: She kicked me out of the woods. That sounds so bad. It's like, how bad did you use? She was like,
0: yo, you can't stay here. Then you go to the woods. She's like, yeah, you got to be out of the woods. Yeah,
1: you can't stay in the public property next to me either. Because I remember she was going to work one day and I was covered in. I I had these big like leaves and stuff covering me because it was cold at the time. Mm -hmm. And she stopped the car and she was like, what the fuck are you doing out there? I thought you left days ago. I was like, I didn't have anywhere to go. I just. I was, I was starving. I didn't eat anything in days. <laughs> so she eventually said, hey, I'll take you somewhere. I had nowhere mm-hmm. to go. And that was the moment where I was like, I need to get help. Mm-hmm. So I went into State Funded Detox. And then towards the end, I had already made a plan to leave and go stay with my childhood friend Jeff and I hadn't even talked to him so I lied to my counselor Mm -hmm. said all this stuff and I was gonna leave and the counselor like fought for me and advocated for me was like hey man let me get you set up with the Salvation Army before you leave I had no idea or anything he printed out my mugshot as an ID got me into the Salvation Army I remember H and I came in and I didn't really pay attention Mm -hmm. I sat in the back and just fucked around and I was in the Salvation Army for a while, and then I went I'm out. I'm a
0: big advocate of the Salvation Army. It's, I love it, dude. It's crazy, bro. It's such an amazing program. It is. And, like, people say all this shit, like, oh, it's fucking Christian brainwashed. It's like, bro, people have nowhere to go. Yeah. And they'll take anybody. That's why, like, when people are like, oh, you need help, it's like, dude, if you're not willing to go to the Salvation Army, it's like, do they feed you?
1: They fucking feed you like crazy, man. They wow. help you apply for food stamps. They have like an entire buffet of food. It was great coming from being homeless and like mm-hmm. sleeping in the woods. I was like, this is fucking awesome. I was like, yeah, I love Jesus. I mm-hmm. love the Bible. <laughs> I just like acted it out. Look, I got crosses everywhere. Yeah, dude, look at me. I love it. And they're like, what about that one on your face? So I was like, ah, he put it on wrong.
0: Okay. What was the structure like? Did you not like any of it?
1: It wasn't that I didn't like any of it. I don't really know what it was. See, the thing is, it was really disappointing because I went out on July 4th. After 30 days, you can leave. Mm-hmm. And three days after my th- Like leave, leave or go outside? You can go outside and you yep. have to come back by curfew. Yeah. And I did that. And the first night I did that was July 4th. Mm-hmm. And I went out, saw the fireworks. And my friend Jeff, who's super unreliable, <laughs> and he had me late by mm-hmm. like three and a half minutes. And they kicked me out.
0: Three and a half minutes. Dude,
1: they would kick you out if you were 30 seconds late. They kicked me out and I stayed with him for a while. What an
0: amazing lesson. Like, people might think that's ridiculous, but it's not. It's no, like, it's bro, not. You know, we're doing so much for you. The least you could do is be here on time. And, like, some people hate stuff like that, but it's like you got to draw the line somewhere.
1: Yeah, you have to implement Because if you say,
0: okay, 30 minutes late is fine, everyone's going to show up 30 minutes late. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's like. That's how the world works. Yeah. Like when I was like getting clean, like that shit used to piss me off so bad. Like what's
1: the big deal? It's so
0: stupid. Whatever. Were
1: you pissed? I took responsibility. I knew I knew that I was supposed to be back. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like where. You
0: weren't like blaming Jeff.
1: Yeah, because I was so burnt out at that point. I feel like that was such an important moment in my life because I was no longer playing the role of the victim. Mm-hmm. It was, like, my first time in my life where I had, like, coughed up and, like, took responsibility for my actions. And, like, although I didn't stay clean then, but it was just, like, a really important lesson that I learned then. And I stayed with my friend Jeff. And this is what's crazy. This is, like, where I, like, truly believed and knew that I was an addict. It was a moment I was at his house, and every day I would wake up, I would see a bottle of, like, Kahlua and a bottle of rum in the cabinet, and I was obsessed with wanting to drink it. I had such a desire to want to use. It was so overwhelming. I had never really been like clean before to where you had to resist it. Yeah. yeah, where I had to fight it off. And I got into another program and they wouldn't let me use my cell phone or some shit and I ended up leaving and I stole this other kid's phone and I got drunk on a fucking bus bench drinking Mike's Hard Lemonade. That was my thing towards the end, drinking Mike's Hard Lemonade. I don't know why. It was just so Fucking good for me. It was such a you know, loser. You look like
0: a Four loco kind of guy.
1: Yeah, I was too, but Mike's just did it for me at the time. It was so cheap. But <laughs> I got drunk at the bus stop and the cop woke me up He was like, hey, you can't stay here. So I tried to go get into the psych ward. How old
0: are you at this time?
1: Uh, like 26, 27, something like that.
0: It's crazy to be that age and being like it's so bad. So terrible. With society, because a lot of people are really bad drug addicts, but... In a society sense, they still have like a place to live, maybe a little bullshit job, you know? Yeah. Like there's people like banging like three hundred bucks of heroin a day, but like they have like a little car or they have transportation or like a place to live. Like they're still (laughs) just that's why I see like a feral cat.
1: You see like fifty year olds who are still heroin addicts and are homeless, and you're like, How the fuck have you survived out here Mm -hmm. for that long? Like Kudos to you for fucking being resort, but, like, what the fuck? Bro, in
0: Florida, I can't imagine it. When I see these people that are homeless, I'm like, dude.
1: Yeah, it's fucking scorching out here. So it's like, what?
0: That's like when people talk shit about homeless. Like, dude, you wouldn't last one day. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You wouldn't last one day out there, okay? That's what pisses me off. And I find myself being judgmental, but it's very short lived. I eventually just like identify what it is and let it pass. But there's just a lot of things that I see now, like where they're just like, oh, I I can't do this. I can't get to this meeting or I can't stay clean. And it's like, bro, do you know what I went through Mm -hmm. to get clean? and stay clean, like, you don't even understand the magnitude of how severe my addiction was yeah. and what the circumstances were. And how
0: much effort it took.
1: Yeah, dude. I, and, and that all came from just, like, an invaluable gift of being so desperate and willing to do whatever it took to stay clean. Mm-hmm. I'm forever uh, grateful for that because a lot of people don't get to experience that. Mm-hmm. Even with people, I know I have friends who have been clean for years that still haven't, like, experienced that overwhelming feeling of gratitude for the willingness that they have to be a part of recovery and stuff like that. doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them or anything. Mm -hmm. It just means that I don't spend as much time with them as I do with the people like you. Yeah. Some
0: people aren't like enthusiastic and like, don't wake up feeling like this is a miracle, you know? And like, I don't know. It's like some people just don't have that and you know what? Some of them might be horrible drug addicts and we're homeless or whatever. They just don't have that kind of like perception or attitude about life. They're just not yeah. excited about being alive.
1: And I just know? try to keep it simple. I'm like, all right, at least they're fucking clean. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, no, Regardless about anything else, who they are, what they do, at least they're clean mm-hmm. and they're alive and they're there for their families mm-hmm. because ultimately like for us as a whole, like that's. All we want, like our human nature is to be a part of our families, to feel love and accepted and stuff like that. Mm -hmm.
0: What led you to getting clean this time?
1: Somebody had got me a scholarship into a halfway house. So I never really got to experience the whole treatment experience that Mm -hmm. most people did. So I got a scholarship, went down to West Palm Beach. I actually got almost left by the... Wait, how did you leave North Carolina? So I was sitting outside that psych ward. They wouldn't take me because I had no mental health. It was Mm -hmm. only substance abuse. And I did this thing where I made a pity post on Facebook about how I was going to kill myself. I had no reason for living. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends that I had met at a high school party, his name's Dion. He reached out to me via Facebook, and he was like, hey, man, do you have any insurance? And I was like, no, you have any money, your, your family? I was like, dude, I don't have anything. He hit me back like an hour later. I'm sitting there with a back. I think of, I
0: know him. He's pretty popular on Facebook or something. Yeah. He does, like, marketing.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: he's, yeah, he's He like, has
1: a center down in, uh, I mean, up in North Carolina. Yeah,
0: he owns a treatment center now. Yeah, right?
1: it's Carolina Centers for Recovery. Wow. I
0: think. Yeah. That's cool. So he got you clean.
1: Yeah, dude. He hit me up an hour later, and he was like, hey, listen, Rocky, I got you a Greyhound ticket and a scholarship for one week and a halfway house. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't have any money. He's like, that's all right. He's like, one day when you're able to give that opportunity to someone else, you do it. That's mm-hmm. how you can pay me back. And so the bus was leaving like 14 hours later, like the next morning. I went to the bus stop and, and at the Greyhound and waited. And they brought me down here. I almost got left at the gas station in Georgia. I had to run after the bus because I spent too much time in the gas station. But I got down here to West Palm Beach And I was in Riviera Beach, just in the middle of the fucking hood. I know it very well. Yeah, I just showed up and I was just so grateful. I was like, oh, this is the beach. And there's just like fucking trap boys on the corner. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't care. The beach is right there. Constant crime scenes (laughs) going on. Just like murders happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just like grateful. And then I was still convinced at the time that I could still drink. There was multiple occurrences where i relapsed because i still Mm -hmm. thought i could drink and each time that i was like alcohol really isn't a drug whatever that i can still like be a part of that lifestyle each time i ended up feeling more hopeless and desperate and isolated from the world each time it was all like due to my circumstances of how i felt on the inside Mm -hmm. it was no longer about like the external unmanageability and stuff like that it was everything on the inside the first In a meeting that I went to down here was at the 12-step house. I believe it was either Mainliners or Star Group. And I had went to that group. And after I got out of the meeting, and I went to Seven Heaven a couple Mm -hmm. times. And I got out of the meeting. And I remember seeing Were you
0: skeptical about recovery and meetings and stuff? Or are you like a believer instantly?
1: No. I I guess I was skeptical because I didn't stay the first time. Mm -hmm. I had reservations because of the alcohol. So I got a sponsor. And when I was sitting outside the, the meetings, I would pretend that I was on my phone. So mm-hmm. no one would approach me, me. But also, too, there was a deep, gnawing feeling that I wanted to be a part of. I saw how people were chopping it up and having fun. Mm-hmm. And I remember that. And I also remember that people didn't come up to me despite me being on the phone. So I remember that. It was like deeply ingrained to, to how I operate in recovery now. But I remember I got a sponsor. I started working the first step. And then after six months, I went out and drank. Mm -hmm. And I eventually ended up homeless again. I was using Coke and Xanax again. There was a moment of clarity that I had that talks about in the literature where it's like, hey, listen, you have this moment of clarity. And you're absolutely willing to do whatever it takes to stay clean. And you're open-minded to anything Mm -hmm. that you need to do to stay clean. And that was the feeling that I experienced. I was like, I have no other alternative but to try this so when i got clean this time i still had reservations i still had all my drug dealers phone numbers on my phone i still had a hydrocodone bottle that Mm -hmm. I was keeping that was empty so that if i wanted to cop i could put it in the bottle and get away with it halfway and eventually i got a sponsor it was mark h and he started sponsoring me he started taking me around to these meetings and introducing to all these people that can we
0: talk about how he does this thing so like one like mark uh, one he's like retired But, you know, he will grab someone and introduce them and take them everywhere, which like, dude, when I sponsor someone, I'm like, call me for, you know, every single day after day seven, I'll give you your first step. I'll say like, you know, I'm not going to like answer every single call, but we're going to get to know each other through the step work. Yeah. And like, you know, after a while, we'll like go to some meetings or something like that. And like, that's kind of like my approach. Yeah, And I feel like I'm kind of like that because when people ask me to sponsor them, they think we're going to be, like, hanging out every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, bro, we need to do writing and reading. And you're going to write and read, and then Mm -hmm. we're going to go over it. Mark is like, yeah, come on. (laughs) Yeah,
1: come on, man. I remember he took me the first.
0: And then he introduces, like the newcomer would like one day clean, like a celebrity. He's like, <laughs> Hey guys, you got to meet this person. You
1: know, <laughs> He's like, look, we have next. Yeah, it's this uh-huh. guy. <laughs> yeah. He's so excited. Have you met Rocky yet. Yeah. Oh man, you got to meet him. He's yeah. got a face tag. Yeah. You can't forget <laughs> yeah. him. And then he would just, yeah, he does that. And then, it, and it's a part of who I am today. Mm-hmm. What's so uniquely different about recovery is mm-hmm. that when you start, coming and you start working steps and you get involved with service and stuff like that. The people that you have closest to you, you have a part of them in your personality mm-hmm. and who you are today. I can see myself doing stuff some days. I'm like, that's something Mark would do or I'll do something mm-hmm. like that's something Brian or Mikey have would do mm-hmm. or something. I find myself doing that, but it makes it unique because it's who I am. You know, like I have a combination of all of these experiences I have with all these people that make me who I am today. And it's really cool. But he did that man. And I still do that to this day. That's the funny thing about sponsorship. Like it's been different experiences for me because there are guys I've sponsored where it's naturally we, be, we developed a friendship. And, so, and there's some where mm-hmm. they hang out with different people and that's okay. Like ultimately like sponsorship is more important than any of that, mm-hmm. you know, personality shit for me at least. Yeah, he did that for me. He mainly introduced me to people with time. And he would like get their phone number, take it. He mm-hmm. wouldn't leave the two of us until we exchanged phone numbers. Mm-hmm. And I collected all these phone numbers very early on, even 90 days clean. I remember sitting after meetings and walking up to those people that were doing what I was doing when I first tried to get clean, mm-hmm. where I was on my phone, distracted, trying to pretend that I was you know, doing something because I was too terrified to be a part of. And I would sit and spend time with them individually. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that I know to, the, to this day that are still clean. And mm-hmm. I know that that's so important for me because it was so needed and necessary for when I first tried to get clean and it wasn't provided to me. Mm-hmm. So when I go to meetings, like, the chop is, like, great. You look for Yeah.
0: Full- sometimes you forget, like, what's important. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because sometimes you go to the meeting and it's, like, who's speaking? Who's getting a key tag? You're, like, on your phone and, like, the meeting ends and, like, you want to talk to someone about, like, something else. You know, like, when I first got clean, I remember being with, like, my predecessors who would be, like, chasing down the kid who shared the burn desire
1: yeah (laughs) the kid's terrified yeah (laughs) bro And it'd be
0: like you know everyone's arguing about the traditions and like the speaker and he's like bro that's what it's about yeah that's the most important thing that we're doing here you know like rest in peace steve burdick like bro this guy was like that one dude for me who like chased me outside of meetings and like when the meeting would close like everyone would be hanging out going to like where should we go eat or whatever and this dude would come up to me and Find me up, pretend to be on my phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. It was such a good feeling mm-hmm. when someone I remember there was an experience that I had with you and there was an experience I had with George K and Mason, mm-hmm. these people that would take time out of their day f- away from spending time and chopping with their friends and like sit with Graham. Mm-hmm. Graham was one of the main ones after the 10 o'clock. He would sit out there on the blacktop with me at Sunshine Cathedral mm-hmm. and just listen to me for hours. He wouldn't even really like interact yeah. in the con- uh-huh. He was so patient. And Jonathan Goals is another mm-hmm. one. Jonathan was in service at the PM Recovery. He was the secretary, and I remember him just like being spin, spinning out and also being like passionate about doing mm-hmm. this. And it was such an inspiration, and it attracted me to do that. You yeah, know? he's a rock star. All yeah. of those guys, man, yeah. I can go on and on with those 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 people. Mm-hmm. And really, it, it's not so much it's, important the name; it's like what, what recovery do. does. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's crazy how like um, impactful we can be because it's like. Most people live their life like, dude, if you give that homeless guy five bucks, is it going to make a difference? No one really, like, does volunteer work. And, like, even if you do, like, suddenly you don't feel like you're making a difference. But, like, in recovery, you really can. Like, bro, remembering someone's name. Like, I remember the first time someone remembered my name. So I was like, dude, that dude remembered me. Or, like, yeah. You know, like, I, I belong here. And, like, you can buy someone a sandwich. Mm-hmm. And, like, they'll fucking remember it for the rest of their life. You know, yeah. like, it's cool. Like, what we do in recovery is, like, it's unmatched like any other thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's very unique. And I remember early Because people are there like on the worst day of their lives. Yeah.
0: Or just after, you know.
1: Yeah, it's so important that we're very aware of how we're treating each other mm-hmm. and also treating the newcomer because it's important to see how we're treating the newcomer, but also it's like you're treating the newcomer with like connection and love and stuff like that. But if you're turning around and treating your friend like a piece of shit, mm-hmm. it's going to be very unattractive and it's contradicting to how you were treating them. Mm-hmm. So then they're like, what the fuck? I'm very aware of like what I do and how I treat people to the best of my abilities. I'm mm-hmm. human. You know, we have days where we feel uncomfortable with ourselves and we might hurt someone's feelings and we cause harm, even recovery. Like it happens. Mm-hmm. Like I know that that's the experience for almost everyone that i know where we've done something in recovery that we were ashamed of and we mm-hmm. felt guilt and we did it again maybe mm-hmm. but we still like was consistent with our recovery and tried to stay clean
0: i was talking to my friend chris and 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 we were talking about like what is it about people that like we do or don't like or whatever and like we both came to the same conclusion like I really like people who are enthusiastic about carrying the message. Yeah. Like when someone's enthusiastic about carrying the message and like they make that a priority in their life, it's hard not to like that person. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you just end up like just having a lot of like admiration for people like that because like they're doing something that's bigger than them.
1: There was one moment a few years back where I had this occurrence and I guess I would call it awakening to where I had a list of resentments mm-hmm. of, towards people And I was sitting there and all of a sudden I thought about what would happen if they died, if those resentments Mm. even mattered to me anymore. And I really, Mm. really thought about that. And I was like, I don't think that it would matter to me anymore. I would be more compassionate about the loved ones that just lost someone who died or something like that. Mm-hmm. So if you really think about that, like if I have a resentment towards you, Brian, and it's it's a very deep resentment and you die tomorrow, I don't think that will be as important to me as the fact that, you know, mm-hmm. you lost your life, you know? What's really important for me is always to keep what's most important, like what you said, mm-hmm. like what we do. Because we depend on each other to stay
0: clean. Yeah, and I think in recovery, like, uh, it's kind of like six and seven step. Like instead of like trying to get rid of what I don't like or what I don't want or whatever. I just focus on the things that I do like and the things, you know? Yeah. So it's like, instead of like going out of my way to talk about the people that I don't like or complain about things not going right in my life, like I got to focus on what is going right. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking to this girl yesterday and she was like, dude, there's so much traffic yesterday. It took me two hours to get home. And I thought she was like, you know, complaining. And like, I wasn't mad. Like who wants to sit in traffic two hours? But she was like, when I drove by the accident, I was like, damn. Someone definitely lost their life. Yeah. And I was like, wow. She was like, yeah. I was like, who cares about waiting in traffic two hours? But, like, very rarely do people ever think about that. Yeah.
1: Like, no one's in
0: traffic for two hours. Like, most people are like, fuck, this sucks. Most people aren't like, well you know, thank Someone God I'm alive. Hurt, yeah. yeah. You know, it's better to be in traffic than to be the one in the accident. Yeah. So it's like, you know, just having like gratitude about stuff like that is like really key in like how your whole temperature of your life is, you know, where you could be miserable or happy. What has
1: like the last six years been like for you? The past year, six years have been wonderful. This is what I talk about a lot too, is like, I'm so grateful for the pain that I went through in mm-hmm. recovery in active addiction. Like there are Definitely parts of me where I'm very remorseful for the harm that I caused myself and other people, and I wish it didn't happen the way that it did, of course. I Mm -hmm. think about a lot of those times, but I would not change anything. Like I don't think that if I went through that desperation and that hopelessness and sadness and stuff like that, I don't think that I would have the level of gratitude that Mm -hmm. I would have today. All of those experiences I have had in recovery— whether in relationships or with friendships or new jobs or leaving a job or whatever the life has brought in front of me, like I've remained gratitude and consistent with my recovery because like you said earlier, it's like that passion, that fire that I've had from the very beginning hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. There has not. And this is what gets me. A lot of people say, man, wait till you get kids and wait till you get a wife and then you uh, get more responsibilities at work. You're going to see that your connection to recovery. And I'm like, fuck that. No. Like recovery is my number one priority. It would always be that. And Mason said something that Mikhail that he heard Mikhail say Mm -hmm. in a step study meeting. And uh, Mikhail was talking about how he is going to stay clean for the rest of his life, even though this is a just for today, Mm -hmm. like how we plan for the future and how we have faith in ourselves that we're going to stay clean for the rest of our life Mm -hmm. is by staying clean just for today.
0: Yeah, and it's like, um, a lot of times people don't understand like the just for today mentality, like it's like a weak mentality, like, oh, I could relapse tomorrow. But it's also like, if someone said like, we could die tomorrow, you know what I mean? It's like not that different, you know what I mean? So it's like, I'm aware that relapse can happen. And I'm humbled at the fact that I know that I can relapse at any point in time. I'm also aware that if I continue to do the work, I'll continue to get the same results. You know, I always use like the gym metaphor. Like if I Mm -hmm. consistently go to the gym and eat healthy, like I'll stay healthy. There yeah. are like crazy things that can happen. dude. you get into a car accident or whatever? Yeah. So like, even though I know like my recovery is like super solid or whatever, like you don't know what like a death of a family member, a car accident and something, you know, being in the hospital and having to take pain meds. And like, dude, you might end up abusing those pain meds. Like crazy things happen. But with that being said, like when I'm going to meetings and have a sponsor and working steps, I'm pretty confident that if I continue to do that, I'll stay clean for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah, I absolutely trust that without a doubt, those suggestions and the key tags, as long as I'm doing those consistently Mm -hmm. and what's consistent for me, because what's consistent for me is obviously going to be different for the next person. Mm -hmm. But I trust and know without any doubt or reservation that if I'm doing those things, then everything is going to be okay, no matter what happens.
0: Hey, well, thanks for coming on the show. For sure. Love you, dude. Yeah, I love you too, man. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.
2: Seeking the truth never gets old.